Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to tonight's program, hosted by the Commonwealth Club of Silicon Valley. My name is Alison Van Diggelen. I'm host of Fresh Dialogues and a contributor to the BBC. It's my pleasure to introduce our esteemed speakers this evening. Dr. Aubrey de Grey is the Chief Science Officer and Co-Founder at Sense Research Foundation and Vice President of New Technology Discovery at HX Therapeutics. Dr. de Grey is a biomedical gerontologist and received his undergraduate degree in computer science and PhD in biology from Cambridge University. Dr. Robert Hariri is founder, chairman, and CEO of Cellularity, Inc. He's an accomplished surgeon, biomedical scientist, and aviator. Dr. Hariri is a graduate of Columbia College and Columbia University School of Engineering and Applied Science. He also earned his MD and PhD degrees from Cornell University. Dr. Cynthia Kenyon helped pioneer the field of aging and is vice president of aging research at Calico Life Sciences, a Google Alphabet company. She spent many years on the UCSF faculty as a molecular biologist and geneticist and earned her chemistry degree from the University of Georgia and PhD from MIT. And finally, Chip Walter is a science journalist, National Geographic explorer, filmmaker, and author of Immortality, Inc., Renegade Science, Silicon Valley Billions, and the Quest to Live Forever. Chip was one of the original employees at CNN and served as bureau chief in San Francisco. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Dr. Aubrey de Grey, Dr. Robert Hariri, Dr. Cynthia Kenyon, and Chip Walter. So tonight we have the honor of some specialists here, some experts in the field, but we only have about 50 minutes to explore the science and quest for longevity. So I'd like to keep us on a storyline. We're going to start by defining your missions, then we're going to dig into the science of aging and explore the strategies as well as the pros and cons of extending our lifespans. And then we'll take your questions from the audience. So let's start with Chip. You have written this amazing book, Immortality, Inc. And can you describe your mission with the book? What made you want to write this book and what are you hoping to achieve? Well, I've always been fascinated with the idea of long life, longevity. It's always, I, I think, you know, the human race has been fascinated from the beginning, going all the way back to Gilgamesh. There's been, you know, plenty of myth and art and philosophy, religion, and there's also been plenty of snake oil. Uh, so I think whenever I was looking at this, I began to wonder, is it possible that we are actually at a place in human history where science, not snake oil, not myth, could solve one of the great mysteries that we've all wondered about, which is basically solving aging. And uh, I think this is beginning to happen. And I wanted to go out and I wanted to look at that, that question. And I wanted to really, it's really in a way, I mean, you might think of it as a science book, but it's really kind of a history book. 
uh, and, and I'm trying to look all right, with the book. I, I wanted to ask, well, if this happens, who are the people behind it? What would be the motivations behind it? What kind of forces would need to take place for this to happen? And, uh, and then tell that story, you know, try to get to the bottom of that. And that's what I've tried to do with this book. I've tried to find who are the key people, who are the big thinkers, uh, what, what kind of money has to be behind it, what, why do we even want to do this? In the end, I hope that I was able to weave together a story that, uh, that tells that tale. It's a fascinating story. It reads like a novel. Okay, Cynthia Canyon, you're leading aging research at Calico Labs. Briefly, what is your mission there, and what is your definition of success at Calico? Well, I was a professor at UCSF for about almost 30 years um, before I went to Calico. And while I was at UCSF, I became interested in aging, uh, partly because at the time, the most people thought that aging was just entropy. You just wear out. There's more disorder and decline, and that's all there is to it. But if you look in nature, what you see is that different species have very different lifespans. Some live a very short time, and some live a very long time. So that means that gene changes during evolution had to change lifespan. So that means there have to be genes that somehow determine the rate of aging. It has to be. that make us age much more slowly than a dog, for example. So we worked on a tiny little roundworm called C. elegans that just lives a few weeks. And so in my lab, we, um, we looked for gene changes that could extend life. And we were very lucky to find that mutations in a single gene could double the lifespan of the animal and keep it young way longer than normal. And it wasn't long before we were able to make a few changes and get them to live six times as long as normal. And so that and the work that we did with these, with these mechanisms, trying to understand them, um, really got me interested in, you know, in trying to kind of go beyond my own lab and to try to help um, find out whether you could, um, I don't know, first of all, translate this to humans in some way. In other words, use some of the information that we know from studying the basic biology of animals to improve our, our health in longevity. And um, when I learned about Calico, Calico is kind of a funny company because they wanted to do half just basic research. And the idea of just being able to do creativity-driven basic research in a really kind of moonshot way, studying animals like naked mole rats, which don't seem to age, little mouse-like creatures that seem to live, they live a really long time, for example. And also to be in a position where we could actually try to take to the clinic some of the information that we've gleaned from work on animals and also make discoveries at Calico that could go to the clinic. So it was just too exciting and too big an opportunity for me to turn down. And so success to me, there's two kinds of success, actually. Um, one is to make, you know, there have been a lot of really fundamentally fascinating discoveries about aging and how it works and the many different ways you can slow it down. And I hope that we find another, you know, or maybe two or three more. I think there's more big discoveries waiting to be made. And then, of course, I hope that we can, we really can apply what we know to humans. As you know, for a long time, we've been trying to cure diseases, which is a fantastic, and we've done a, not a perfect job, but people just don't die of infections the way they used to, or heart disease the way they used to. And, but the people still age at the same rate. So you have more people who are older who, in some cases, aren't living in a very healthy condition. So the hope is that we could find ways, like these little worms that stay healthy for a really long time, of, of maintaining our health for a longer period. So that's another goal. And it's not just my goal. It's the goal for the whole field. You know, it's a shared goal. 
Great. Yeah. Aubrey de Grey, you're, you, what is your mission at Sense Research Foundation, and what is success for you? <clears throat> well, um, really, it's very similar to what Cynthia just said. I, um, I grew up not understanding that the idea of bringing aging under medical control was a controversial concept. I just thought nobody ever told me that aging was not a medical problem. And so um, it was actually 1993, the same year in which Cynthia published a seminal paper that really transformed the entire field, that I went through a transformation of my own. Because a couple of years before that, I had married a biologist, having previously been a researcher in a completely different discipline, artificial intelligence. And through her, I had accidentally learned a lot of biology. But gradually, around 1993, I began to realize that she just wasn't interested in aging. And none of the other biologists I was meeting were interested in either. And I thought, what? Is going on. <laughs> right. um, and after a year or two more, I basically decided I had to switch fields and, uh, and work on this because the other biologists were just not doing it. Of course, I didn't know about Cynthia at that point. Um, uh, and as time went on, you know, obviously I became able to make a few contributions. Um, I actually do want to mention another contribution that Cynthia's made over the years, which is extraordinarily important and often overlooked these days when the medical applicability of this field is more established. Back in the 90s, this was heretical in the extreme. The idea of actually saying we ought to do something about aging, you know, if you wrote that in a grant application, you would be dead. <laughs> uh, and Cynthia was one of the very first people who actually went out and said this. And so I, you know, I often feel that I'm kind of, you know, standing on her, on her shoulders in, in, in doing what I do on the advocacy side. But for me, success is all about saving lives. And when I say saving lives, of course, I'm talking about quality as well as quantity. I often have to really, you know, remind people that longevity is just a side effect of health. And we're just doing medical research, just like any other medical researcher who says that they're working on a specific disease. We're all about keeping people healthy, and we think that we have a fighting chance of doing it so well that the magnitude of that side effect of longevity will actually be rather large, but it's still a side effect. Can you quantify large? I mean, you're, you're famous. No, we cannot, we cannot quantify large. <laughs> uh, 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 I always like to point out that the human body is a machine. It's a really complicated machine, of course, but it's still a machine. And as such, we need to look at what happens with simple machines. We know that a car, for example, can be maintained in as functional a state as it had when the day it was built for as long as we like. There are cars that, that are 100 years old today that were not designed to last more than 10 or 15 years. And the only reason is because they're simple enough that we already know how to do really comprehensive preventative maintenance on them. So the goal of our work as gerontologists, as biomedical gerontologists, is to develop medicines that do exactly the same thing, that do sufficiently comprehensive preventative maintenance to eliminate the damage that the body does to itself throughout life in the course of its normal operation, and thereby to completely transcend the, let's call it the warranty period that evolution has built into our bodies. All right. 
Okay. Robert Hariri, you've said that you believe aging is a stem cell problem. You co-founded the genomic-based health intelligence company, Human Longevity, Inc., and now it's Cellularity, Inc. What are you striving for exactly, and when will you have arrived? Well, you know, Cellularity was born out of a company that was uh, seeking to turn living cells into medicines, and we use a platform uh, that took advantage of some very unique biology in the placenta, the organ that uh, we all know is, is, is sort of the life support system for the developing fetus. Um, turns out that at a time when I, I'm a neurosurgeon by training, I took care of head and spinal cord injured patients, I was mostly interested in finding a way to improve the outcome in those patients. When stem cells first hit the, uh, hit the airwaves, I said, well, this might be a tool for me to improve the neurological outcome. That's what got me into the field, and we, we made a lot of advances uh, turning those cells into tools to control inflammation, which stem cells are very good at doing, uh, and stimulating regeneration. And the concept of regenerative medicine as, as a means to provide or improve health is, is, is not new. It's not novel. It's been around a long time. But it was during that period when, when, uh, when our company became part of a, of a growing enterprise, it was really a cancer-focused company, that, it, that I first saw data that impressed me. And the data basically showed that in patients as they aged, there was a very abrupt decline in the number of stem cells in one organ system that we were looking at, the bone marrow. Turns out that if you look at the bone marrow of a baby, one in about 20 to 30,000 cells is a stem cell. If you look at the bone marrow of an 80-year-old, it's one in 30 million. Wow. So what does that tell a, a surgeon who's you know, not as smart as the rest of the folks on this panel? That, well, can we just add stem cells and, and change things? So what we did was we ran a very simple experiment. We collected the placental stem cells from newborn uh, research animals and then gave them back their stem cells after sexual maturity on a regular basis. And this little skunk work study turned out to show us that those animals live 30 to 40% longer than their litter mates. Now, that wasn't obviously enough to, to, uh, to launch a big research program, but it intrigued us enough to say that stem cells may, in fact, play a role in doing two things. Preserving performance, physio-anatomic performance. In other words, maintaining the structure and function of our bodies as we age and allowing the immune system to perform at optimum levels throughout our lifespan. And uh, that's what got us there. And we're, our success for us is showing that these products uh, are meaningful in the treatment of age-related diseases, immune diseases, and cancer. Um, but I think the future is going to be very bright for applying them to, to human performance. And the preservation of human performance, to me, is a nicer way of saying longevity. Great. I like that. I like that framing. Okay. So now let's dig a little more into the science of aging. I think, um, Cynthia, you're probably the best to explain in, in basic terms, why do we age? What is happening to our bodies? Well, our um, tissues ability to withstand stress and to function in a, in the proper way just declines at many levels. Um, Cells lose the tissues, lose their integrity to some extent. The cells within the tissues lose their ability to carry out their functions in the normal way they behave. They don't coordinate their behaviors with one another as well as they used to. Um, it's really interesting. If you, take, if you look at the mortality rate 
of a species like humans, the chance that you'll wake up one morning and die that day goes up the older you are. And it goes up in a very regular way. If you plot it on a exponentially, it's a straight line. Starting at about age 30, the chance of death, you, you, you know what it is. You don't know if you're going to die. I think chance... it doubles every eight and a half years. Exactly. That's right. So that's the human rate. And it starts when you're young. Uh, a dog, it doubles much, much more quickly. Obviously, dogs have a much shorter lifespan than we have. But again, it starts when they're puppies. And I think that's very interesting because it says that there's something inside a young person. We don't know where it is in the person, if it's in all the cells or just in one place, that's programmed that person to age at a certain rate. And it's already there when they're young. Same with dogs. So that's what I think is the most interesting thing is to find out what's the programming? What is it that creates this resilience that's different in different species? Right. And you found this simple genetic mutation that can double or make six times the length uh, lifespan for roundworms. Can you explain in simple terms how that happens? What's going on? Yes, I can. So it turns out that very early in evolution, it looks as though simple organisms developed the capacity to withstand stressful conditions like the removal of food or the presence of a lot of radiation or hot temperature, desiccation, all sorts of different stresses. And what they seem to do is if, to a first approximation, if any of these stresses, they have a system at least that can make them resist all these stresses all at once. And it turns out the mutation that we a mutation is a change in a gene. It's a gene change. And so what we found is if we change this one gene called DAF2, then just one, one base pair in the whole DNA, that's all, the animals, everything changed, and the animals aged much more slowly. So how did we do that with one base pair change? Well, it turns out we changed a, um, a regulatory gene. It's like a computer program, and you have kind of a hierarchy of, of control systems. And we, ch- we had intervened at a very high level without knowing what we did at the time. Now we know. We came in at a very high level. And what we did is essentially we caused the animal to kind of, I'll say think in quotes, that it was under stress. And so what, what happened is this animal had, had reprogrammed itself, all its cells, so now they were much more resistant to any kind of damage. And the way they did that was they make all these proteins that take care of other proteins, repair the DNA. There's all sorts of things that they do at different levels. But they were all coordinately switched on. So it, it, was, it was very, very interesting. And those animals lived twice as long, suggesting that the same, we don't really know exactly, but at least some of the same um, properties that can protect, or systems that can protect animals from stress can also protect them, if you will, from the stress of aging. So it's kind of a, a very high-level, not very nuts and boltsy explanation, but if you change the same genes in, a, in fruit flies or mice, they all live longer. Mice are mammals like we are. So it's, it's a universal kind mechanism. of programming mechanism. And there are hints that it's present in humans as well. In fact, we already live a little, a pretty long time. So one of my theories is that perhaps this system is already a little bit turned on in us by evolution, allowing us to be just naturally more resistant to the stresses of wear and tear and time. Right. Aubrey, you've identified seven aspects of aging damage, or as you call it, the set of accumulated side effects from metabolism that eventually kills us. Can you briefly explain a couple of key side effects? Um, 
How can I answer this quickly and for a general audience? Um, well, I think actually the best way to, for me to do is to jump off from what Cynthia's just said, because as you say, uh, we focus, I, fo- I have focused for a long time on not slowing aging down, but actually reversing it, actually repairing the damage that the body does to itself throughout life uh, so as to truly rejuvenate people. And of course, in principle, this would be um, far more you know, valuable than just slowing aging down. It would be more valuable to people who've already got to middle age or older. But also, the, I mean, the, really the thing that um, is now being taken more seriously is the idea that this might actually be easier to do medically than slowing aging down. So um, one thing that Cynthia just touched on is that in humans, we may already be somewhat adapted to doing the kinds of things that mutations in short-lived organisms can confer. And in fact, it does seem that way. For example, if you put longer-lived animals under stress, in particular if you put them under the stress of famine, then they tend to live longer, but the proportion by which they live longer in longer-lived organisms is much smaller than what you get in short-lived organisms like nematodes. So, um, you know, there's a lot of complications here that we certainly don't understand. And to me, the goal is to figure out how much we need to understand. I always look at this as a technologist more than as a basic scientist. I don't find things out for the sake of finding things out. I find them out in order to figure out what to do to manipulate the system in a manner that is desirable. So the kind of damage that we look at are things like the accumulation of waste products which happen in all organisms, uh, but in different ways, in different cell types and in different organisms. Um, For example, the loss of cells, which um, Bob's already spoken about. We need stem cells to restore the number of cells in an organ that is progressively losing them, uh, which is ultimately the driver of aspects of aging such as Parkinson's disease. Many examples. And this means that the approach that we're taking, this rejuvenation approach, is much is very much a divide and conquer approach where we have to repair a bunch of different types of damage simultaneously in the same person or in the lab, of course, in the same organism. Um, and this is kind of complementary to the more unitary approach that has dominated the field ever since Cynthia really, you know, blew this whole thing open with the discovery of DAF2. I think they have to both be pursued. Right. Okay, Robert, uh, you're a pioneer in stem cell research and the the use of the placenta, as you said, to treat life-threatening diseases. You've called the placenta nature's stem cell factory, and you've said you're striving to turn stem cells into medicines. Can you explain in simple terms how stem cell therapy works and what you anticipate in the next five to ten years? Well, to to try and, and simplify the way we believe stem cells exert their therapeutic effects, um, I think of it in, in, in terms that, that are really consistent with what Cynthia and, and Aubrey are talking about, which is that underlying health and adaptability, the ability to uh, deal with disease or injury, uh, you have to have a good programming system that's intact and uncorrupted. And stem cells can be thought of as a, a way of preserving the full transcribable uncorrupted genome in a form that can be used to sort of reprogram the body over time. You know, what stem cells do in, 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 uh, uh, in all of us is they allow for a continual process of renovation and renewal. You know, all of us, the, 
sitting in this room, most of the cells in your body are less than two years old. Okay? They, have, they have been derived from a stem cell reservoir that has been called upon to renovate your organs and tissues over time. Aubrey, you said something which I love because as a, as a pilot, I see the same thing that you talk about with, with automobiles. You can keep an airplane in remarkably good condition if you always have perfect, uncorrupted replacement parts. And if you replace them on a regular schedule and you actually, you actually replace them before they fail, failure of, an air, of a system in an airplane is like a disease. Right? If you can replace that beforehand, and if we can do that with a cell, replace a bad cell before it goes bad, um, you might never, ever uh, develop any of these diseases, any of these symptoms. So in, in, in our world, what we're trying to do is provide a reliable, high-quality, scalable, and economical replacement part. And the beauty of the placenta is these cells are, um, are one-size-fits-all. You can take a placental cell and put it into an unrelated recipient and not have to match them. We've treated hundreds and hundreds of patients with placental stem cells, never had to match them between recipient and, uh, and donor. The other thing is that aside from being a universal cell in that regard, if we collect them at birth, process them, expand them, and then freeze them, put them into cryopreservation, they're in a state of suspended animation. So that programming that's in those cells can't be corrupted. I mean, people probably, probably don't know this, but a cryopreserved cell, when you put a cell in liquid nitrogen and you cryopreserve it, it's impervious to all of those things which damage DNA. Mm-hmm. You could put a cesium source, a radioactive source, next to a cryopreservation tank, the cells will not be damaged by it. When you thaw them and, and put them into somebody, you've, you've now kind of given them a whole bunch of master reboot disks. And, the, and, and you know, Craig Venter and I um, uh, talked about this, that, that if, if your DNA is your biological programming language, and we're talking about some of the corruption of programming that can occur when genes go awry, um, the cell, the stem cell itself, is like a miniature computer with the processor in the cytoplasm and the keyboard on the surface. And if you can replace that and always have those, those in a new, healthy, young form, um, you, have a, you have a better sh- shot at maintaining that youthful form, youthful phenotype, well into your advanced years. And that will allow you to pr- preserve that performance that is, makes living longer worthwhile. And isn't one of the ideas, I mean, with, with uh, HLI, with <coughs> when you and Craig were working together, the idea of understanding the genome itself, you would be able to anticipate what might start to go wrong before it goes wrong, and then address that. That was the hope. When human, when human longevity was founded, um, we were just beginning to compile the data set necessary to fully understand what these genes actually did and, and how they were uh, related to um, uh, risk of developing disorders, um, uh, the, the strengths to prevent you from developing diseases. The reality is that that, that gives you a, a great... Um, uh, uh, opportunity to to act before you have one of those fatal, lethal events taking place. Y- you remember when we first started talking about this, right. the concept was study enough patients, get enough data, and then try and find what the common denominators of health into the advanced years was. And that, and that process is still, go- still going on. Right. Okay. And that brings me to my next question. We're here in Silicon Valley, the epicenter of technology. What tech developments are speeding up the development of these longevity breakthroughs? Chip, you can probably talk to this about 
how Silicon Valley is aiding with this, with artificial intelligence, etc. Yeah, well, and I guess one of the things that hasn't really been mentioned, I should mention, is these people here are some of the key people in the book, and there are, and there are many other uh, key people in the book and and the the whole idea of the book was to pull together the work that they're doing but also to to learn who they are and why they do what they do um you know ray kurzweil is an important character in the book and he certainly is a person that feels that uh technology plays a big a big role in this um i but but to step back from that a little bit i mean i think that and and you guys may or may not agree with this but i, I think where i'm coming from at the end of the book i i basically came to the conclusion even though i was quite skeptical at the beginning that people like this are going to solve this problem uh and i i sort of see it i guess in 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 a in a couple of different steps and one of the first waves i see is stem cell technology uh the that it, that that will be a way to sort of reboot some of the systems that are breaking down and 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 elongate our lives and improve uh our our lives uh and then you know the and and that that relates a lot to the work that you're doing Aubrey um and then i think kind of the second wave is understanding the genomics of of the human body you know getting a better handle i mean we 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 know so little we have sequenced the human genome but we don't really know that much about it so what are those switches that are flipped in the human body that that could change these things and how can we understand those and you need to have much more information we're gathering it rapidly that's an important factor uh and in order to do that you have to have artificial intelligence machine algorithms that can solve biological problems that are incredibly complex uh bench scientists are not going to be able to solve this problem uh just sitting there you know they'll have to sit there for a million years um and and then i think uh you know the last the, the last issue is really can we un- can we truly understand the underlying reasons why we age in the first place and that is obviously related to genomics uh you know what are those switches that are being flipped and uh and and how how if possible can we change them uh and again uh artificial intelligence and machine learning uh algorithms are going to be necessary in order to do that and to me it's just a it's been a fascinating story to watch the science un- unfold to watch the thinking to watch the human emotion that's involved in in uh, why you want to do these things and then you know i guess we'll, one of the things we'll talk about at the end is if we succeed in this then what you are listening to the commonwealth club of california hear thousands of our podcasts on itunes google play and stitcher learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations and when you're in the bay area please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year you can find us online at commonwealthclub.org now back to our program right that brings me on to you know i'd like to move us on to the pros and cons of longevity chip you write in your book quote with our clocks stopped we might discover more time to enjoy our families our friends and learn from our mistakes and get our lives right fulfilled and happy at last it's very much a utopian dream but i also want to kind of explore the negative parts of this let's talk about the morality and wider implications of radically extending longevity 
There's the opportunity cost of using millions in capital and the best brains to extend lifespans when there are more urgent existential problems like climate change now impacting millions. It could create, some people say, a dystopian future of further overcrowding and heating up our planet. And then there's the financial aspect. Won't it radically increase the rich-poor divide? And affordability, given that 60% of Americans have less than $1,000 in saving, is extending our lifespan even a desirable goal? If we all lived even 10, 20 years longer, how can many of us afford to retire? So I'd like to just go down the panel. Let's start with you, Aubrey. Can you Yeah, right. Us? Well, I could spend at least a couple of hours on this. <laughs> okay, you've got two minutes. <laughs> so, um, of course, the key thing to recognize in the entire entirety of what you just said, all of the so-called ethical concerns and so on, is that they were all revolving around longevity. And you may remember, some of you out there, that... I already told you, we don't work on longevity. We work on health. The only way that it's possible to entertain any of the things you just said is by starting by completely putting out of one's mind the fact that in a world that doesn't have aging anymore, people won't be getting sick as a result of having been born a long time ago. And that's quite a big deal. When I talk to audiences about this, I often ask them, hands up anyone who wants to get Alzheimer's disease. Go on, go on, hands up. (laughs) Hands up anyone who wants anybody else to get Alzheimer's disease. Don't count your (laughs) mother-in-law. I mean, it's not a difficult question. And yet, it seems to be possible for people to completely forget that when they are asked questions along the lines of, would you actually like to live a long time? What the fuck? I mean, there's no other way. When I first encountered this, I realized that the only way to describe this is as a trance. Because when I was an undergraduate in Cambridge in the early 1980s, I actually went to a stage hypnotist show where this kind of thing was done. Somebody was got up on stage and put into a trance and told something that wasn't true, namely, basically the hypnotist switched his elbows. You know, he said, okay, this is actually your, right, your left elbow. And then he said, okay, please, um, you know, touch your left elbow with your right forefinger, and he couldn't do it. And the key thing was not that he couldn't do it. The key thing was then the hypnotist said, okay, why couldn't you do it? And the guy gives a perfectly lucid, grammatically correct explanation that is nonsensical in the extreme, and he doesn't even realize it's nonsensical. It's that bad, boys and girls. <laughs> okay, Chip, follow that. Well, I think that, I mean, Aubrey, Aubrey uh, mentioned something that I think is incredibly important. I mean, think of the last four or five years of life, how much money we spend to keep people alive, and how nice it would be if we weren't sick like that. There's a thousand percent chance that when, as you age, you're going to get sick. And so that's, that's a huge bonus, uh, just financial bonus. That's a huge financial bonus. Imagine people that can continue to work. They have all the intellectual capital that they have. They have all the wisdom that they have. They're not doddering, and they're not clattering and falling apart. So I think that alone is a really important question to ask. I think it's also been shown, uh, and I think that we were talking a little bit about this before, that um, as societies become better educated, 
women become better educated in societies. They, they don't get married as early. Uh, they don't have children as early. And Cynthia, you were talking about how important that is. You know, how rapidly we have more people is slowing down. In fact, since the 1980s, the actual uh, rate of growth has been slowing, even though more people are being born all the time. So I think that there are a lot of issues here that we haven't really looked at. Uh, And I think that one of the important things that I wanted to come out in the book is that if this is going to happen, we better get smart about how we handle these things as a society. Uh, And I just think that we have to step back and go, oh, my God, this is going to happen. So how are we going to handle it as a society? That can't happen until we admit that it's going to happen in the first place. Great. Cynthia, I know you're sympathetic to the climate change argument. Oh, my God. I have to say... It, it is obviously I, incredibly I, I wake up many days thinking, should I just quit my job and do something for climate change? I mean, I honestly really think that. And it, immortality, first of all, I don't think we're going to be immortal, period. Second of all, I mean, if the earth ends, what? I mean, it's moot. So that's a huge deal. But I'm just going to put that aside for a second and focus on this other question. So the cool thing, one cool thing about these animals that, uh, these mutant animals that live for such a long time, the diseases of aging. So let's talk about age-related disease. These are diseases like cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's. They're They're diseases that become much more frequent among the elderly. So you have to ask the question, why is that? What is it about aging being old that makes you more likely to get cancer or Alzheimer's disease. People are trying to understand. There's a certain kind of cell in the body called a senescent cell. These are very interesting. There are cells that no longer divide and they stop doing what they were normally doing, but they just sit there and they secrete uh, substances that cause inflammation. It turns out that can lead to a lot of diseases. And in fact, scientists have now shown that if you sweep through and kill a lot of senescent cells in older animals... They don't get a lot of diseases. So that's one thing that links aging to age-related diseases. It's very interesting. But the idea is that if you could slow down aging itself, you know, like I said with animals, you can change one gene. Or like you could take one pill, for example, maybe. And if you could slow down all of aging, well, then you should slow all the diseases down. And you, you push them out. And you also, for some reason, you make them less severe when they do occur. So that is a kind of almost a medical goal. In fact, NIH is getting very interested now in incorporating aging research into all the different institutes, the Institute of Cancer and Neurodegeneration and so forth. Because if you could if you could slow down aging, then I mean I know you want to know about whether it's good to be immortal or not. I don't think we can be we can't. You'll get hit by a bus. There's no way out of it. Someday you're gonna die. Someday. But I I don't even want to go there. I, I feel like we have such an opportunity right now to have a whole new orthogonal approach to going after lots of diseases all at once by studying the root cause of a lot of these diseases. It's way bigger risk factor than smoking, aging for cancer, for example. It's way bigger. So anyway, that's really exciting to me. And also the fact that of staying healthy for a long time is very exciting. Okay, Robert. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want to get into the sort of the philosophical issues here because we, we, we need far more time and, and it would drift into political uh, perspectives and so on. The reality is that for those whose goal is to uh, is to live longer, very few would accept that outcome if the extended life didn't come with what we call quality, which I call performance. You know, I, when I, I've given a talk, for example, at the Vatican to a fairly broad audience, and I asked them, "How many in this audience would like to live to 150? What's your view of 150? Is it a 
robust, high-performance lifestyle. Most people say that, if you, that when you think about that, uh, the concept of living to 150 is you know, that you, you've really degenerated and decayed quite a bit. But if I told you how many of you would like to live another 75 years exactly the way you are right now, how many would you raise your hand? It's a larger number, right? So, so that, to me, is all about preserving, preserving that level of physio-anatomic performance, structure and function that allows you high-performance mobility, high-performance cognition, and selfishly, believe it or not, this is a big factor, you want to maintain youthful aesthetics because that allows you to compete in society with peers who are perhaps generations younger than you. So the reality is for the work that we're doing, we're looking to find tools that can be brought into the clinic that will impact one or more performance metrics like mobility. And if we can demonstrate a product like a, like a cellular therapeutic product or a gene-modifying pill or whatnot allowed a 100-year-old individual to be able to walk, have a six-minute walk test that was, was high performance or could lift you know, 100 pounds over the head, those are the sorts of uh, endpoints that to us are meaningful. And we do think that we do have some tools at our disposal right now that can help. There, Many of you probably know people are going around the world to clinics who have degenerative joint disease, and they're delaying the need for joint replacement surgery by injecting things like platelet-rich plasma, which is kind of a signaling array of, of molecules that come from, for the most part, cells like stem cells. But they're also injecting stem cells into joints, and they're seeing evidence of radiographic improvement, and many patients have symptomatic improvement. So the tools are out there. It's just a matter of putting them into large enough clinical experiences so we can actually make legitimate, rational decisions about how they should be deployed. Right. And for our radio audience, I'd say it was probably about 50% of the audience said they wanted to live to 150. Okay. So I'd like to go to audience questions now. I have a question. How can I use the techniques you are researching now before you're finished without waiting until I age further first? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. I think... think, um Bob, I'm going to tackle that. You know, we run a, we run a, a, a company that's developing uh, therapeutics using the traditional drug development model, which is phase one, phase two, phase three clinical studies that are in randomized placebo-controlled trials where you define the product, you define the clinical endpoint, and you, you attempt to demonstrate that to high fidelity to the regulatory world. That's the way we're developing these products to treat cancer, immune disease, and so on. But the demand for treating some of these age-related degenerative conditions and, perfor- and performance decline is so large that cellular medicine is being deployed around the world in clinics where they're looking for products that are at least acceptable for, uh, for use in, in patients. Now, there's lots of problems with that, right? I mean, it's, we're never going to get the answers we need if that's the way these products are put out there. But... A, a progressive, forward-thinking regulatory and clinical community that allows clinics offshore as well as domestically to try these products in things like age-related frailty, for example, where some of the endpoints are straightforward, right? You know, again, it's, it's it, what we call the short physical performance battery. That would give us high-quality data that could arrive at at an approval. And remember, the process of approving a product uh, by the regulators is based not just on not just on efficacy, but on safety. If something's really safe, you can accept 
even marginal efficacy. Okay? Mm-hmm. So th- I think that's the way this field's going to evolve. Um, there, are, there are probably 20 very respected academic scientists who are chasing things like age-related frailty. So that, that, so that, that gives me a lot of hope this is going to move. Great. Here's one for Cynthia. How far are we from productizing meaningful longevity changes? That's a really good question. Um, I don't know. We won't know till we know, honestly. There are lots of different ways now that you can make animals live longer. And for example, there is a a drug that people take already. It's called rapamycin um, that's used to prevent uh, graft rejections if you have an organ transplant. And there are side effects, so I'm not recommending that you take it. But when you give animals this same substance, they live longer. Again, I don't think that it's a good idea to take it. There are, I don't want to go into it, but there are side effects. But there are lots of people right now trying to make better versions of this that don't have the side effects. Now, they may not work in people. For, I mean, they work for things like organ transplants, but they may not work for longevity. But since they work in many, many species like worms and even single-cell organisms and fruit flies and mice, you know, there's a reason to, to think that they might work in people. So if they do then it won't be long because we already have them. Um, if they don't, then it could be long or not. We just don't know, and we won't know till we know. Okay. You know I, 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 yeah, I'd like to say a word about that because uh, while Cynthia, I completely agree with Cynthia, what Cynthia said, that we don't know and we won't know until we know, nevertheless, I feel that experts like us do have some kind of duty to come out with a best estimate. Because at the end of the day, the fundamental problem that we have Exemplified by the answers that we saw to Bob's question earlier, that even when he put in the qualification with good health, a lot of you didn't raise your hands, right? This is, you know, this is a problem. And I think a lot of it comes down to people's fundamental unwillingness to get their hopes up. (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, uh, unwillingness to believe that this will ever happen. There's been a lot of people throughout the entire history of civilization saying, oh, yeah, we think we may be able to do something about aging already, and they've always been wrong. So it's justifiable to be skeptical. But if you're too skeptical, you'll think it's just a pipe dream and it's never going to happen and you won't be interested in supporting it or lobbying for it or anything like that. And the result is the research will go more slowly because there will be less support for it. So I believe that experts like us have to come out and actually give an estimate of how soon we're going to get how much progress, even despite the fact that that estimate has to be enormously hedged. We absolutely have to say how speculative it is. So my way of doing this is I say I I give an estimate and it's completely subjective but it's based on everything I know of how soon we have a 50-50 chance of making a decisive difference to longevity. As many of you know I feel that there will be a very sharp tipping point when it does happen. We will go from making only a very small difference to making a really large difference very suddenly. The question is, when will that tipping point occur? And I believe right now that we have a more than 50-50 chance of getting there 20 years from now. That is the kind of quantitative prediction that almost all scientists utterly refuse to give, and I understand why. But I feel that we, who are working on the foremost biomedical challenge for humanity, really have a duty to come out and actually put numbers on this. 
Right. I, I just very quickly, since I'm not a scientist, uh, and, and having spent lots of time with scientists in the course of writing the book, I basically believe uh, that within four to five years, we will begin to see some s serious progress, and I, and I believe that we'll see it first in stem cell therapy. And that doesn't mean that we'll just flip a switch and everyone's going to stay young and, and healthy, but it means there'll be a beginning, and we will be begin to buy time, and then there will be additional breakthroughs, and that that will be at uh, an exponential rate. Okay. I mean, and the, you have to keep in mind that, that when, you look at, when you look at what longevity is and, and how it's defined in population terms, okay, lifespan has been most impacted in the populations by eradicating causes of premature death. Right. If you want to, if you want to move the, the average uh, age at death, you simply stop people from dying at 30, 40, 50. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so identifying cancer, better diagnostics, so early detection of cancer clearly is going to have a huge impact. And Cynthia, this is one of your colleagues, uh, Art Levinson, did that analysis where he said if cancer was cured today, it would only increase average lifespan by two or three years. Wasn't that two point right? eight years? Right, mm -hmm. right. So. Um, so that means there's a lot more room in there. You know, there's, there's an, a real argument to be made that other factors which keep people a active in society have almost as big an impact as reducing the incidence of coronary disease. So there are other things that we have to look at as well. All right. And I'd like to bring the discussion to this month's big news. This week's big news is the growth of the coronavirus in China. I understand, Robert, that your company, Cellularity, is collaborating with Sorrento therapeutics to develop a vaccine. Can you talk a little of that and, and give us a timeline, a potential timeline for that? Well, let me preface this by saying that this is, this is an urgent emergency response to what might be a very serious global uh, infectious threat. Uh, Joshua Lederberg, Nobel laureate, said um, uh, the greatest threat to human survival was the, uh, the development of an infection of unknown origin that could spread as a, as a pandemic and, and, and kill millions. The Earth has experienced that many times. Coronavirus is getting a lot of attention because it appears that it's spreading very rapidly and it has a lethality that's higher than what you find in, for example, flu, seasonal flu. What we, what we are basically doing is, as a responsible member of the biopharmaceutical biotech society, is we're attempting to make available one technology which is fundamentally biologically active against virus. It turns out that in our immune system, there's a cell called a natural killer cell. Natural killer cell is a specialized T cell that is pre-programmed to identify some very interesting molecules that appear on virally infected cells, stress antigens. And it turns out that the placenta produces a very large number of universal natural killer cells, which can directly attack virally infected cells like coronavirus infected cells. So we're working to, with, uh, with governments to, to accelerate the process of making that available. The beauty is these cells come from the placenta. And you know how many placentas are thrown away in the world every year? Almost 150 million. So it's, a, it's an abundant resource that could be called upon uh, to, to, de to deal with this type of crisis. All right. We have another audience question. There's a guy in the audience whose wife is eight months pregnant. If you had a baby tomorrow, he asks, what would you do with the stem cells? Yes. Collect them, process them, and bank them. <laughs> I mean, right now, the stem cells from birth can be stored for the lifetime of the donor. 
okay, which means they'll be around for your, your baby's entire life if necessary. They're already an insurance policy if you needed to identify bone marrow forming cells, hematopoietic stem cells, cells that make up your blood and immune system, if you needed that for a transplant. And that's the conventional way that stem cells from newborns have been used. But those same cells can be used as the starting material for immunotherapeutics, right? Making T cells that can be engineered for CAR T therapy. They're also the same starting material that's being used today in organogenesis programs. Martine Rothblatt at United Therapeutics is using stem cells to repopulate organ templates to make replacement parts. So, listen, there's a cost to doing it, no doubt about that. It's not an astronomical cost. It's about the cost of, a, of an annual cell phone bill. But the reality is that it's a, it's, a, it's a health tool that could be far more useful 10 years from now than it is, it is even today. Okay. Here is another question from the audience. What are the effects of advanced glycogen end products, ages in aging, and what can we do about it? Okay, the word glycation, actually. Okay. Well, there are many effects, but they ultimately lead, um, in the, the most clear effect, is to loss of elasticity of certain of our tissues. So this is believed to contribute to age-related high blood pressure, also wrinkles, for those of you who care more about what you look like than what you feel like, and also, for that matter, presbyopia, lung sightedness in the elderly. Um, what can we do about it? Well, actually, we at Sense Research Foundation have been pursuing work on this for several years with a project at Yale University, and we were sufficiently successful with that work that we were able to spin it out as a startup company just um, three or four months ago. Uh, essentially, the molecular nature of many of these crosslinks has been established for a long time, and people just kind of thought it was too difficult to figure out how to actually eliminate these and, and, and break things up and make things more elastic again. And we don't like giving up. So we worked on it for as long as it took, and sure enough, we have some handle on it now. These things called ages, if you take something like Brussels sprouts and you put them in the oven and make them really black, or vegetables, that what, what's happening is that the, the sugars that are part of the vegetables are changing chemically, and the chemical form is not good for you. So it might be nice to eat more steamed vegetables and fewer of these brown, even though they taste so good. They're not good for you. And the same with using certain kinds of oils as cooking oils in high temperature. They can, they can become very reactive, and they can undergo chemical reactions with your body that are damaging. So there are simple things you can already do right now pretty much for free. Okay. This evening has gone super fast, and we have time for just one last question. I'd like to ask each of you, we spend the evening anticipating the future, and it arguably could be just around the corner. I'd like to ask each of you, what is your top tip for extending your lifespan using a technology that's available today? The one thing that is clearly proven to improve your resistance to disease and your lifespan is maintaining your lean muscle mass as you age. The, one of the best studies I've ever seen out of the Karolinska looked at, followed 9,000 men for 25 years and found that the one predictor of resistance to dying from cancer, heart disease, and, and extended lifespan was those patients who maintained lean muscle mass and strength into their 70s and 80s. Work out. Okay. Cynthia? Um, come back to me. Okay. <laughs> okay. Chip, would you like to go next? Sure. I mean, one of the things I was going to say is the, the, the answer to that question that no one really wants to hear is exercise. Um, 
And, and, and so that's important. And I think another, another huge killer is stress. So do whatever you can to reduce the stress in your life. That's much easier said than done. But it's really important because it, it will get you. And what do you do to reduce your stress, Chip? Actually, I, I, I meditate and I also tell myself, don't do that. <laughs> you know, right, I mean, a, a lot of discipline. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times I'll, I'll get myself in trouble with, with projects or something. And, and then I go, oh, my God, you know, this is so stressful. So I just say, I'm not doing that anymore. But, but ironically, you have to have lived a while before you learn that lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Aubrey, what's your top tip? Well, I'm going to give three. The bronze medal position is pay attention to your own body. Because everyone's different. You can't take any common denominator into account to very much extent. Do what works for you. In the silver medal position is, uh, write me a large check so that I can... <laughs> now, there are people in the audience who have actually done that. Um, um, uh, my, my gold medal position is, get Larry Page to write me a large check. Cynthia. <laughs> well, I believe... Um what I said about Brussels sprouts, number one. Number two, exercise. Number three, taking time to be happy. Um, having good social bonds actually does increase your, um, your lifespan. Uh, education is correlated with lifespan. Staying active mentally is, is, is good. I think diet is important. Personally, I think you should just keep your eye on the literature. People are starting to do real studies now, scientific studies about these things. But I think your food can be quite important. Uh, I just wanted to make one more little point about Aubrey. What Aubrey said, I shouldn't do this, but he said that we have a duty to predict how long it's going to take. I think we don't have a duty to predict. I think what we have a duty to do is to tell you what can happen in animals and that there are many different ways of slowing down aging in animals that are really different from one another. We didn't have time to go into the, all of them. And we're animals, right? So maybe they'll work in us, but they might not. To me, that's the responsible thing to say. And if they do, it's terrific. There you Thank are. you very much, Cynthia. I hope you've all enjoyed this evening's program brought to you by the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley. Again, I would like to thank Dr. Aubrey de Grey, Dr. Robert Hariri, Dr. Cynthia Kenyon, and Chip Walter for being here tonight. And I'd like to thank our audience here in Palo Alto, and those of us joining us on the radio. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned.